Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 636. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Welcome back to the sofa. Yes, we've been in deep space there for two weeks and we're back with one fantastic story. Oh, yes, indeedy. I'll tell you what's coming today's show. First up is the main fiction, and it is Nobody Enough by Dancel Cherry. This story first appeared in Future Science Fiction 2. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, that's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. Now, before we get into the main fiction, just a little a little treat for you there. Our very own, well, as soon as I say, our old past editor, Jeremy's book is out now. Jeremy Zal's book, Stormblood, is out. And I've got the audio book. I put my name down for the audio book. And the narration, man, is just fantastic. Honestly, I'll put some links there. Do you know what I mean? It's a great book. It's just, you know, I mean, never mind that we know kind of Jeremy and he's kind of was, was part of Starship Sofa's blood for five years and I had him working night and day. And enough of that, you know what I mean? That, that goes without saying. But it's just, Jeremy, like I said, I mentioned before, Jeremy can write like the wind and he just put this book out. And I thought, you know, he's, when he's writing his short stories, when, when I kind of, you know, you, you hear conversations when I'm like following Jeremy, he had like knockbacks, but he just got back and he, and then he's come back with this one. Oh, man, this is just the future how I want it. Do you know what I mean? This is alien technology kind of in the kind of very blood of humanity, which is just fun. Honestly, man, go out there and get it. I'll put some links to the, to Jeremy's story. I'm about, I'd say four or five hours into it there now, and it's just, it's an, it's, it's that escapism you need, you know, especially from the days kind of the way we're going in today's world, you know what I mean? It's so sad and bloody dis- disappointing, you know what I mean? But the kind of jump into Jer- the world Jeremy creates, and you know, I, yeah, he just a, he's just a pup. But, you know what I mean? But the kind of the, the gravitas he's got with his story is just fantastic. So there's links there. Please pop over to Jeremy's. Like you see, you can get it in all formats. But, the, you know, I, I recommend the audio book. You know what I mean? It's just, it's actually just a stunning piece of work, to be honest. So we will get into the main fiction. Like I say, Nobody Enough by Dantzel Cherry. This story first appeared in Future Science Fiction 2, which was April 2019. When Dantzel 
Cherry is not raising her daughter or teaching Pilates and dance. She's writing. Danzel's short fiction has appeared in Fireside, Future SF, Cast of Wonders, Galaxy Edge, and other magazines and anthologies. She lives in Utah with her husband, daughter, and two obligatory cats. Everyone's got two cats. Now, this story is narrated by Anthony Babington. Anthony Barton Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetch Fables and The Cursed Inn. You can find him on Twitter at Alpha Baker. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Nobody Enough by Dancil Cherry. Full house, I said. I smiled but the tension of the moment strained across all three of my avatars. My primary av, the one with the best poker face, and thus the one handling the cards, faced Marcy's primary and studiously ignored every other body in the room. My other avs, like the rest of the non-players, sat just behind the table as still as possible, waiting for Marcy to end this one way or another. The generous helpings of shrimp and brie soured in my tertiary avatar's stomach, and I regretted indulging my tertiary with those last two plates. I searched the eyes of all of Marcy's avs, but found no hint as to whether I'd push my limits again. I'd probably be fine, though. I'd caught Marcy in a bluff before. Marcy drummed her fingernails on the green felted table, then flipped her cards over. Straight flush. The adrenaline crashed, and my primary's body shook uncontrollably. I closed my primary's eyes and tried to pull from my secondary's Pilates training to get my primary to breathe deeper and calm down. But none of my usual tricks worked. I'd royally screwed myself now. Marcy wasted no time. Though I'd closed my primary's eyes, she showed the winning cards to my secondary and tertiary and shared a smirk with her other three avatars. The other players around the table had moved on. They gathered chips and cards as though their whole world hadn't been ripped apart. Which, for them, it hadn't. They'd all folded before this nonsense got out of hand. But then, everyone else here had warm, fuzzy collectives that would never consider betting an av, let alone their primary. I was not one of those collectives. Marcy, your cards? One of Daryl's avs called. Marcy handed them to her second-best Av, who handed them to Daryl's card-shuffling Av. "'Best out of seven? I asked. Marcy laughed and kissed me. All three of my Avs stiffened in response to this invasion of privacy. It was an uncomfortable kind of sexy. This Av of Marcy's had always been my favorite, but I'd imagined this first kiss occurring after I'd won her body and brought it into my collective— not the other way around. Mid-kiss, Marcy fiddled under my curly hair with the little transmitter screwed in at the base of my skull. My other avs glared but didn't dare argue. Daryl would never bet an av of his own, but he'd enforce a win with his primary's meaty fists if necessary. You should be grateful I'm ending the game before you lose the other two, Marcy's tertiary av said. Which was true. I'd been the idiot to suggest raising the stakes too high, and until I could get another crack at winning my original av back, I would have to do my best with the two avs I had left. 
Such savagery. Who in the world functioned with only two Avs? Not Marcy. She was now up to a respectable six avatars. The perfect collective household. She was turning my head now to get a better look at my gadgetry. Her breath tickled the hairs on my neck, and her perfume wafted into my nostrils. She looked at me with a mixture of revulsion and coyness, and turned back to her work. You like it? Don't worry, this av will get very familiar with my perfume. Now, this might... My vision darkened. Crackle. Agony. Snap. One of me screamed. One of me swayed in my chair. One of me fell off my chair and hit my elbow and my bones shook. And then one of me was gone. My secondary recovered first and asserted control as primary. I looked at Marcy and her new Av with my only two sets of eyes left in the world. I felt so small, so limited. Was I missing some colors from my vision? My Av, her Av now, gazed back at me. I tried to reach out to pull it back, but of course there wasn't a single thread of consciousness from that curly-headed Av to follow. Marcy held her new Av's hand, waiting for it to adjust. When it did, it smiled at her. See? Life's better as Marcy. Now, hmm, let's celebrate. Nothing's better than kissing yourself. She pulled my, her, Av close and kissed it with passion. I couldn't watch. Get a room, Daryl said, wrinkling his nose. Good idea. Marcy said, and stood up with my, her, Av moving in perfect synchronicity with the other four. I moved to leave, too. Hard luck, another player said. I shrugged my Av's shoulders and followed Marcy out of the penthouse, close enough to show I didn't care she held my former Av's hand, and far enough away I didn't have to smell her perfume or talk to any of her disgustingly perfect Av's. She stopped at the elevators but I headed for the stairs. Going down? My former primary called. Hell no, not with you. I have some calories to burn after all that food, my new primary said. It was the handsomer, more poised of my two remaining abs, and the only decent thing I had going for me now. The stair doors slammed, mercifully shutting off Marcy's answer. That Av had been a lot of things. The most educated, the natural leader, and I'd bet it away and had no collateral to get it back. Now I needed to figure out how I was going to pay rent next month. Wrapping tacos and teaching Pilates two times a week wouldn't be enough by half. My former Av's administrative assistant position at the construction company had been the main wage earner, but that belonged to Marcy now. I could go to her, maybe, and ask her for a pro-rate of my Av's last paycheck. But knowing Marcy, she'd turn me down. I couldn't pursue any of this legally without getting in huge trouble myself. Av's moving to other collectives after adolescence happened, though rarely. And Marcy had my Av legally, as far as anyone else knew. But blowing the top off our poker games didn't seem like the best move right now. 
Marcy was long gone by the time I exited the stairwell, my secondary huffing and puffing. I almost called for a cab on my phone, but could practically feel the dollars in my bank account cringing. I took the subway instead. I finally got home, starving and wishing I'd snagged more of Daryl's food, and nearly ran into the red-headed prego primary of Liza, my next-door neighbor. Her abs were more attractive than they had any right to be, but she wasn't smug about it. She was probably the only adorable family unit I knew that I didn't despise. Hey, her secondary said, a burly av with a penchant for black polyester. Your primary working late? Kinda, I started to say, then corrected myself. Well, no, my primary left me unexpectedly. Left me for someone else's bitchy collective, I thought, but didn't say that. Liza had only lived here for four months, saving up for her expensive six-av wedding, and didn't know how many avs I'd lost. She had no reason to be suspicious. All of her avs' eyes brimmed with tears. I was sad, sure, but crying? Oh, wow. Wow, I'm so sorry her primary said, her hand unconsciously rubbing her belly. Will you try merging with another collective? I've heard some do that. I fiddled with my keys. I don't think I'm ready to put myself out there right now, you know? Yeah, I know how that goes. Oh, sweet family-oriented Liza. I unlocked my door, but before I could escape the awkward conversation, Liza spoke again. Hey, I know someone who might be able to help. In the meantime, take care, okay? Will do. I kept my voice remarkably light. Liza's green-eyed av graced me with a smile before linking hands with the others and heading down the stairs, presumably to feed each other wedding cake samples or some other cheesy shit. Who did she know that would have an av they were willing to release to another collective? Liza didn't seem like the sort who would approve of that sort of thing, let alone try to help make a switch happen. But even if she really did know someone who could connect me with another av, what was the likelihood that av could cover the rent? And who would want to join a two-av collective anyway? I slunk into my apartment. My new primary av had stupidly agreed to cover the 6 a.m. Pilates class in the morning, so I promised myself I'd only play an hour or two of video games, giving myself plenty of time to get a full night's rest. As usual, I woke up on the couch to the blaring of the alarm clock and the video games stalled out. My avs detangled themselves. There was no time for breakfast together. No time for anything. Ever. My primary rushed out the door, leaving my secondary to lock the door and make it to the bed before collapsing into sleep again. Halfway through the day, I decided I was coherent and ready to try calling Marcy. It took me a few hours. I called her in the evening, just after my old primary finished work. Because she's a bitch, she answered with my old primary. Miss me? My gut clenched. Cute, Marcy. Planning any games this week? Maybe. What's your collateral? 
This hot Pilates body right here, Mart, she cut me off. Her clipped tone would never be mistaken for her poker voice. No one wants your Pilates teacher. Or your taco maker. You owe me... I don't owe you a thing. I practically did you a favor winning that av. I'm dealing with all your bad habits now. So give it back. But this av is so very pretty, Marcy cooed. Call me when you can offer something decent. She hung up. Damn it! I scanned my scanty apartment. There was nothing left to bet anymore. I came home from the morning class three weeks later, eyes burning and bleary, and found Liza knocking on my door. My secondary won't hear you, I told her. Hey, haven't seen you in a few weeks. Oh, you know, I said, picking up extra shifts in classes. Well, I have good news, Liza's black-clad av said. My friend works at the Department of Connections and needs to find a home for an av pronto. A charity case from the DOC? Oh, I said aloud, adjusting the waistband on my yoga pants. Um, okay, can you give me more info? Yeah, I can get you those details, but you'll have to decide this morning. What's your contact info? I must have paused too long, because Liza added, It's really not complicated. They'll run a basic background check for crimes, and you'll bring in your ID and your bank's routing number. What for? The routing number? To send your check. Then it hit me. The Department of Connections was a welfare program. I would get a stipend for housing a complete wreck in my collective brain. Adding an avatar from the DOC felt dirty. Everyone had heard the stories about those unattached people on the news. Homeless weirdos, sketchier backgrounds than my own. But not even a 15-year-old goes unattached to other avatars these days. And beggars can't be choosers. I wasn't a beggar, though, really. Was I? I thought of the red-inked final notice I'd torn off my door and crumpled in my bag last night. The stipend would probably be a pittance, but... Damn it. Liza's friend called me right when business hours started. I panicked and said yes, and the next six hours blew by. Before I knew it, I was at the Department of Connections in an overly bright exam room plastered with posters of laughing collectives, exchanging glances with a handsome yet haggard av named Logan Higginbotham. He was the former primary of his collective, and a lawyer who clearly came from money but had no family or friends who wanted to link up. A lawyer. Not a homeless bum, after all. The guy looked like a blonde dream, but was messed up enough to succeed in killing three of his avs before a cleaning lady found him and called the police, saving him. A different kind of crazy from my own, but I'd touched all kinds of crazy over the years, and I was still kicking. We were directed into creamy white chairs, surprisingly comfortable for a government entity, and the DOC doctor explained to us the initial setup we'd experience, only a partial connection to allow us to ease into each other's spaces, until we requested a follow-up appointment to fully connect us. Only two of you? 
he asked while the doctor fiddled with his transmitter. With proper instruments, not hacking in like Marcy had. I shrugged. It's why I'm here, isn't it? To form a more perfect union? The doctor chuckled. Good one, he said. But Logan gave me a hard stare and didn't crack a smile. To the DOC, my two avs were an oddity. But it was legal, though rare, of course, for avs to switch to another collective. As long as they didn't find out about the poker games, I would be good to get my new av and the check that came along with him. Logan didn't attempt speaking to me again for the duration of our appointment, and when the partial connection was established, he carried a sullen, foreign presence in my consciousness who refused to interact verbally or mentally. To be fair, our connection was the same tenuous link parents have with their child. In my experience, anyway. So I was basically babysitting a moody teenager. As we left the DOC, each carrying one of his suitcases, I tried to feel some kind of connection, but my primary had been ripped off as easily and comfortably as an arm from the body only a few weeks ago, and I barely knew my new self, let alone a complete stranger. Sensing his presence in my network was like touching your dead, numb arm after you slept on it wrong. You knew you were touching something that belonged to you, but it was a one-way touch. I decided to be patient. We'd talk when he was ready. We turned the corner for the subway, and I decided I'd waited long enough. I've never been very good at waiting. You want to talk about it? It felt strange, verbalizing to my own av, but I could tell there was no way in hell he was going to be into any kind of mind-melding crap right now. You want me to kill you like I killed my other avs? He asked in a flat voice. They didn't mention you were a joker. Who said anybody was joking? What, nobody told you about me? They didn't have to. Anyone can see why you're a two-parter. Shedding the excess one av at a time, I said. We were thinking of splitting up anyway, going old school. Logan laughed, a nasty note to his voice. Wouldn't that be something? We got to the subway, not terribly busy this time of day, and rode it to the first stop before I spoke up again. So, you're a lawyer? Don't tell me. Tax law? Family lawyer. I smiled with both my primary and secondary and leaned back against the glass, arms folded. That explains a lot. He glanced sharply at me. What were your jobs again? Pilates teacher and tasty taco employee? I'm already booking my day in court to divorce your sorry ass. I nodded and smiled, mainly to piss him off. And who else is going to take care of you right now? I paused, listening for an answer I knew wouldn't come. This was a government-mandated connection, at least for the first week. We were consenting adults, after all. The best he could do was ask for another av to connect to until he burned through all his options. You have to be connected with at least one other body, of course. You can't go around feeling lonely. You know what? He stood, suitcase in hand. I'm done at this next stop. The train lurched and Logan swayed to catch a pole, 
and turned to wait for the grimy sliding doors to open. I held my tongues and gambled on the notion that I was his Av's primary and he had to come home with me. Hopefully I'd woo him with my cunning wit later. My bet paid off. The doors opened and a swarm of Avs flooded the gap between the door and Mr. Snappy Lawyer, making it impossible for him to enact his running-away routine. Somehow, Logan followed me home, though he was definitely fuming the whole way. Probably because our link was just strong enough that, like a child, he couldn't totally run away from me. His perfunctory glance around my apartment at the food-crusted dishes and cluttered piles of important things didn't seem to assuage his feelings, nor did the sight of my secondary heading for the couch to resume my game from the evening before. "'Welcome to the pad,' I said with an arm-sweep any Vegas showgirl would envy. "'Hungry? I'm pretty sure there's a loaf of bread in the fridge.' He held his withering gaze on me for a few seconds before he began ransacking the kitchen cupboards. "'Whoa,' I said, trying to block him without success. "'What are you looking for?' "'Cleaning supplies. You keep them around, don't you?' "'Well, yeah, it's around here somewhere. My last av was super into that kind of thing.' "'That kind of—' he began, then stopped. He opened up another cupboard and was rewarded for his efforts with a sponge, some ragged towels, and a cleaning spray. He pushed the dirty dishes in the sink.' So what happened with your last av? he asked as he sprayed and wiped with a zeal that should only be reserved for exercising demons. I leaned against the wall just out of his way. I kind of lost it. Oh yeah? Splitting personalities is supposed to only be a joke these days. I smiled, but he didn't let it go. How'd you lose it? What the hell? Might as well get this over with. In a poker game. Huh, he said, scrubbing harder at a particularly troublesome lump on the counter. That explains a lot. Ha ha, I pointed. You missed a spot. He threw the sponge at me, which I caught just in time. Looks like you have plenty to share. I sighed, but leaned over and scrubbed with him. Was this waffle batter or crafting glue? I glanced at his dark eyes and focused on the work. You're awful at this, he said. I told you, this isn't my thing. Was it your last primary's thing? Not really. Clearly. How long has it been just the two of you? I shrugged. A month. Any kids in the picture? What do you think? Chill. Just making sure. Why? You interested? He stiffened for a moment, then attacked the lump until the entire mass broke off the counter with a jerk. That's not really my thing right now. For the first time in a long time, I cringed at something I'd said. I wasn't ready to ask the next question, and I knew he sure as hell wasn't going to answer it even if I asked anyway. So, maybe messing around then? I said in a light voice. I always found that easier anyway. No response. I leaned in. If you find it a little overwhelming to get used to all of me, we can just start with this av for now. 
Speaking of your abs, introduce yourself. Really. What do you do? How long have you been you, besides losing your last av? Oh, I come and go. What does that mean? It means I'm still getting used to this one. Have you done Pilates before? The position I can put this one is... This one's new, too? Relatively. About a year, I think? And the gamer schlub over there on the couch? My secondary reddened and shrunk lower on the couch, but didn't turn around from the game. That's my taco wrapper you're talking about, thank you very much, I said, my primary shooting Logan a dark look. Two years for that one. What the actual... Uh, I'm a family lawyer and I can't believe this. Don't you have any decency? You're living, breathing human beings. You deserve better. Um, you must not know my friends. How many abs have you gone through? He asked, dropping the sponge and turning to face me. Three? This year? What? And the year before that? Four? What the hell is wrong with you? Logan wasn't the first Av to ask me this question. You're a lawyer, I said, not a psychologist. When that changes, we'll talk about what the hell is wrong with me. No, Logan said. No, this is exactly the conversation we need to have so I understand what you got me into. If you lose me, I swear, I will wreck you. Not everyone has fancy jobs, I said. He turned to rinse the sponge out. You really lost all of them during poker games? I really did. Did you pick up most of your avs during these games, too? How'd you guess? He turned back to the counter and began savagely scrubbing a crusty plate. This is shittier than the shit I thought I was leaving behind when I killed myself. Okay, here's the plan. When they plug me in next week, I'll step in as primary and we'll get things under control. Uh, no, I said. I'm getting my old primary back soon, and it'll take care of things nicely. Like it's been doing for the past few years, if not forever? You have an addiction. We'll run elections, then. It's the democratic way. He shook his head but said nothing. I joined my secondary, who I'd allowed to play all the way through that whole conversation from the safety of the couch, and picked up a controller. Mr. Snappy moved into the bedroom, presumably to clean up there, but I didn't follow him. We weren't fully connected, of course, but I sensed his presence enough to know he hadn't run screaming from the dust bunnies in my bedroom. Him, demanding to step in as primary. Unbelievable. I was in control. I'd kept it together this long. I didn't need a lawyer, a complete outsider, coming in and running a dictatorship like I wasn't capable of taking care of myself. We both crashed somewhere around three. Get up, a voice said. You're helping me with laundry this morning. Both of you. Swish, swish, swish. 
I opened my eyes. Scruffy was sweeping the floor. He had shaved, and it turned out he cleaned up pretty nice for not having access to the stuff from his old apartment yet. That reminded me. Hey, my contract is running out soon on this place, so why don't we live at your place? You'd be more comfortable there, right? How sweet of you to think of me. I'd love to. Tell me, how much can a taco maker and a part-time Pilates instructor cover of the rent for a flat in Midtown East? He had to go and make things awkward. I'll see if I can pick up another class or two, but once I get my other av back, we should be fine. He tossed the laundry bag at me, and my secondary caught it and padded off to start a load of whites. Get your other av back? Didn't you lose it in a poker game? Yeah, but I'm totally getting it back. He stopped sweeping. Please, explain how you're going to waste your time and energy on getting something back that's illegal to trade anyway. I snapped my primary's fingers and pointed at him. That's exactly the problem. I was wrong to lose it, and I'm not going to let it go until I get it back. What does it matter? He snorted as he brushed the mess into a dustpan. It's just another av, right? You go through those faster than most people wear out a pair of pants. No, it's not just another av. That was my original avatar. Original, original. The one with the strongest sense of self. Why were you dumb enough to gamble your core identity away in the first place? Because I don't... Let's talk about your issues for a minute. I'm providing a safe haven for you so you're properly installed in a collective. What issues are you bringing into the mix, besides suicidal tendencies? He dumped the contents of the pan into the trash. You're deflecting, but we'll come back to this. Yes, I tried to kill myself, but this av didn't take the right dose. So you can expect some depression, a little PTSD over watching myself twitching on the kitchen floor until they died, and some serious resentment that I was assigned to you. I squinted. Your file said you have a history of suicide attempts, and you just tried to claim primary. That sounds... irresponsible. And you're whoring yourself out bit by bit. How are you even you anymore? I've noticed you haven't declared a gender. It felt like a gut punch to both of my abs. What does you even mean? I burst out. Grade school, they talked about... The amazing collective we were all waiting to form soon. And I followed the protocols. My parents helped me gather the rest of my abs from the same good schools everyone else did. It never clicked. I'd never said that aloud to anyone before. It was as embarrassing to say as I'd always thought it would be. Logan paused. Never? Never. That orgasmic, all-fulfilling self-love and connection shit means nothing. Of course, it's not so dramatic, but everyone feels something. No! I shouted with both abs. None of it! I'm a mess! I'm hodgepodge together! No one I've ever won through my damn poker games has ever really connected. I talk with my abs, we feel each other, we sense each other, we get it on and we make it fun, but I don't... get it. I continued, my voice lowering. I see... Every other collective on the street, batshit crazy in love. But I'm the Neanderthal trying to figure out why everyone else can handle this new thing called fire and not run screaming. 
I searched his eyes and waited for a response. But his poker face was impressive. Why was I being this open with him? My previous primary never exposed myself so much to my other new avs. They could see into my thoughts more than Logan currently could, of course. But none had ever pushed me quite like him. Did I care what he thought? I wasn't sure. The longer I stood here, though, I realized I didn't see the point in hiding this. Not from an av. Whether because it was easier for me or him, I wasn't sure. When a response didn't come, I smiled. My primary wrapped an arm around my secondary, who had just returned from starting the laundry. So, welcome to my brain. Ready to get hooked up to this baby? He shook his head. I'm supposed to be the one with the problems. Why did rejection hurt so bad? I didn't even know the guy. Let's get back to the DOC and get you reassigned then, I said. Why would I do that? He asked, cocking his head. I've seen the weirdos out there. They come into the courtroom all the time. I'll take my chances with you. So your plan is to... what? Fix me? What? Whoa, no. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I like working with known quantities, that's all. I turned away to get ready for the day and put both my abs in the shower at the same time. My abs hugged while the hot water poured down my backs, into my eyes, and pooling in the space where my muscled and toned primary and my softer, larger secondary pressed close. I needed a break after all that heavy stuff, especially my secondary. My original primary's parent, Dina, had never spoken so openly about feeling, though she was nice enough. All of her abs worked well together, at least from what I remembered, so I couldn't think of anything to complain about. My current primary and secondary had harder childhoods. All the abs making up my primary's parent, Javi, had immigrated to the States as teenagers and young adults. And managing his collective and a couple kids had been more of a challenge than he knew how to handle sober. While my secondary's parent, Tiff, didn't know how to parent without raising a hand. Neither of my abs had the financial means or educational opportunities to ever expect to step in as primaries. They knew they'd be purchased, you might as well call it that anyway, to submit to someone else's consciousness, and then to spend years attached to one person, then traded to another, and then another. Well, they fit right in with my original, in the detached way that any person who is terrified of themselves can fit in. And yet, despite the similarities my abs shared, despite sharing the same magical consciousness like every civilized person had for the last forty years, why did this embrace feel like nothing? What did other people feel when they hugged? Did they ever feel better? Would I feel something if I hugged Logan? I squeezed harder, but it just felt like pressure. No soothing balm to my soul, no swelling of love in my breast. I released my abs from their embrace and scrubbed my faces red. I finished my shower and came out to find Logan had made an appetizing breakfast with what little there was to work with in my kitchen. Three plates were sitting out, the steam circling up lazily, even from the toast. The man knows how to scramble eggs, I said. He looked at me, eyebrows raised. 
I wasn't being sarcastic, I said. They smell great. As we ate, Logan said, It's fair to warn you I'm heading to work in a few minutes. My primary stopped mid-bite. Already? These court dates won't wait, he said with a shrug. Won't your clients have issues with you representing them in family court? I asked. You only got out of the hospital, what, three days ago, the doctor said? You, of all people, to ask me something like that. Yeah, yeah, but really. They don't have to know, do they? Logan said, spearing the last few bits of egg on his fork. It's not like my other avs came into the office much. We each had our own careers to juggle. I hadn't asked him about his other avs yet. What did each of you do? Besides this av, a doctor, a stockbroker, and a pharmacist. Holy shit! I knew unicorns like you existed, but... My voice trailed off. He stood up with his plate and fork and began washing them at the sink. I'm hardly the only one, he said. All my friends had equivalent skill sets. No wonder he tried to kill himself, I thought. And for the first time since I'd met him, I felt a twinge of sympathy. Some whisper of my thoughts might have slipped through our connection, because he rushed out the door a few minutes later, his mouth firmly set. I realized I didn't know when he'd be back that night. I had his number, of course, but couldn't come up with anything clever to say. The morning's conversation had sucked quite a bit out of me. So I settled into a video game with my secondary until it was time for work for both of us. Both my primary and secondary got back from work before Logan, and after a quick trip to the grocery store, we set to work whipping up a big bowl of ramen. Surprisingly, Logan turned up just as we were setting the bowls out. Smells good, he said, as though the conversation from the morning hadn't happened. My primary bowed, but my secondary just blushed, and we sat to eat. Do you like living here? he asked, after finishing a particularly long noodle. I don't know. Does anyone like living with cockroaches? Why don't you move? We had this conversation this morning, I said through a mouthful of pork. Your place is too swanky for these abs, remember? These aren't our only options, Logan said, waving his fork at me. We could move to something in the middle of abject poverty and overpriced penthouses. On our combined income? That feels a little ambitious, doesn't it? For some lame Pilates instructor and a tasty taco employee? We might be overreaching our step. You don't have to settle for those jobs. There's night classes, and online classes, and... My mind flooded with memories of every conversation about money and ability and aptitude my avs had ever had. Even with a couple dozen backlogs of previous avs in the back of my mind, every single one stung. I'd never felt competent, and the times I got close, I'd get overconfident and end up betting the best avs away. Logan was just one more av trying to fix me. My primary pushed its bowl away, a little rougher than necessary. Logan looked up. Hey, Logan, hi. Not interested in discussing this right now. Logan nodded and we continued eating in silence. Leave me the bowls, he said when we'd finished. Ugh, no, I can help, I said, and I carried my own bowls to the sink and my secondary began washing the dishes. 
A few moments later, Logan appeared by the sink with a towel. He dried the dishes as my secondary finished rinsing them, while my primary put them away. It reminded me of doing the dishes with my secondary's parent, Tiff, each of us moving around each other in the kitchen. It had been like that with Dina, too, though that memory was less clear without my original primary connected to me anymore. When the last fork clinked into place, I sighed and turned. Well, I'm going to go play for a while, my secondary said, nodding to the screen in the living room. You want to join in? Logan hesitated. Yeah, why not, he said. He joined me on the couch, and we played for a few hours. He was clumsier than me at the controls, which was irritating, but I guess everyone has to start somewhere. When we came to a break in the game, he turned to me. Let's do it tomorrow, he said. I stared at him, nonplussed. Do what? Get fully connected, he said. We'll go to the DOC and have them hook us up all the way. You didn't sound so eager this morning, I said, still feeling the sting of his words. He sighed. I was wrong, he said, sounding as though the words cost him something to admit. I thought those court dates waited for no one. I can take a day off for this, he said, sliding back into his poker face. I thumbed the controller as I considered. What was his angle? Why did he want this now? I couldn't come up with an answer. But how could I say no to this chance? Marcy would jump at the chance to get a guy like this. Which she wouldn't, of course. Because my luck was bound to come back. It just had to. Logan would never be my primary, though, no matter how superior he thought himself to me. I'm on board, I said. Let's do it tomorrow. Okay, he said, then hesitated. Should we go to bed then? Be ready for the big day? My primary pursed its lips. It's not like we were getting married or anything. Well, yeah, I guess. Right after this game. Logan stared at me, his thoughts just out of my reach. I'll see you in the morning, then, he said. He gave me a smile that didn't extend to his eyes and went to the bedroom. That's fine, I told myself as my secondary looked at the bedroom door, less willing than my primary to leave Logan in the bedroom alone. Just a few more minutes. I woke to the sound of butter and eggs crackling on the frying pan. Morning, I said, rubbing my eyes, trying to wake up. Your eggs are done now, he said, sliding the contents of the pan onto two plates with toast and handing one to each of my abs. I sat and ate gratefully. You already ate? I asked, watching as he moved to the sink to deal with the frying pan. Why did he have to cook and clean all the time? What point was he trying to prove? That he was better than me in this as well? Today's a busy day, then, I said through a mouthful of egg. My secondary has work, but they said that was fine, right? As long as one of us was there? Yeah, they said that. He resumed scrubbing the pans. Good, I said, feeling a rise of irritation I couldn't explain. Because we're going to need to work hard to be good enough for the likes of you. 
He wrinkled his eyebrows. Was it possible for that face to look soft? Opened his mouth to respond, but seemed to change his mind. He finished his breakfast and we left the apartment in silence. My secondary heading to grill up the morning breakfast burritos and my primary in the charity case to the DOC to get legally hooked up. How romantic. On the way to the subway, I let him lead the way. I fell back far enough to be out of earshot and called Marcy. Hey there, desperate, Marcy answered. It was my old Av again, of course. Nice to hear you, too. Do you have a game tonight? Why? You have something worth betting? When was the last time you had a lawyer with an apartment in Midtown East? I'm intrigued. This is a step up for you, baby. She gave me a time and a place for that night, and we hung up, just as Logan turned to look for me. I jogged to catch up and tried to ignore the feeling of dread my secondary exuded. The DOC was running reliably late. We arrived fifteen minutes early for our eleven o'clock appointment and sat in silence on the wooden benches until twelve-thirty-six. As we waited, I circled my ankles and stretched my wrists and neck, a boredom routine I recommended to my clients, but nothing calmed my anxiety about the game tonight. What if I lost again? What if I never got my primary back? Did I have the guts to steal it back from Marcy? Probably not. So, do you want to know anything else about me? Logan ventured thirty minutes into our wait, pulling me back into the present. He was leaning back with one ankle crossed over his thigh. We're going to get all that when they hook us up, right? He leaned back and inspected me like... What? What was he hoping to see? Yeah, I guess we will, he said, with a stiff smile that didn't reach beyond his lips. The assistant called us back, mercifully ending the conversation. We sat down next to each other on the same comfortable, creamy white chairs from last week. There we signed the paperwork, and the DOC doctor checked our transmitters, then connected us via the computer. After so many connections, I ought to be able to describe them perfectly. But most of mine weren't achieved through legal channels, so the connections were rarely as elegant and simple as this one. It was far less painful than the way Marcy had done it but manually disconnecting and reconnecting like she'd done was an emergency back door, in the event of cases like, well, like Logan's. One moment he was a fuzzy, nebulous feeling in my brain, one I knew existed over the temporary link but couldn't touch or control. The next moment, with nothing more than a shift, he was me, and I him. I saw the room from his eyes, ran his tongue along his perfect teeth, stretched his stiff shoulders. We traded our memories in an instant, too much to sort through all at once, and no way to cherry-pick which memories and thoughts the other would notice, but enough to taste their life in a messy sort of way. Through the deluge, the first thing I felt from him was pain, squeezing, numbing weight on my heart, and hatred, and loathing, for me. No, not for me. For Logan, and all the Avs he'd been connected to before me. 
I tried to reconcile all of his memories into my consciousness. I was a doctor now, in a past av anyway, and a stockbroker, and a pharmacist, and a lawyer, all too busy being important, carrying the strain of expectation and pretense to take care of themselves. There was always some adjustment that came with a new av, but the memory of his other avs twitching and convulsing on a pristine kitchen floor felt at once as familiar and as foreign as anything I'd ever experienced in my life. So much weight to bear. I realized my eyelids were squeezed shut, tears leaking from each. When I pulled them open, he was staring back at me, features carefully blank. The doctor wouldn't know what he was thinking, but he was me now. And he knew about tonight. Everything okay here? the doctor asked. I'm fine. I could feel the gulf between Logan and me widening. Because he was in my head, I knew he was accessing my memories, watching me lose av after av in a poker game. The doctor stepped back. I'll be back in fifteen minutes, he said. Give you a moment to get settled in. He pulled the door shut behind him, and Logan spoke as soon as the door clicked shut. You're going to sell me out tonight. The fact he was speaking to me instead of just giving me his thoughts mentally, like all my other abs eventually did, felt disconcerting. Everyone took a little time to fully assimilate, sure. But Logan cringed as far away from me as possible. He felt so... small. I leaned in to hug him, to comfort him. He leaned away. I don't want to lose you, I told him. It's not personal, I wanted to say, but from our link, Logan had already heard me think it. And I knew I'd only made things worse. From the link, I knew, it's not personal, didn't mean much to someone who thought so little of himself, who hated and despised himself, that he always put his selves connection last. Through our link, he felt like dead weight, though there was no like about it. He was tired of carrying himself, and now that he'd found out I didn't want him either, he might literally, and or physically, collapse at any moment, leaving me and my secondary to drag him out to the curb with the rest of the trash. I felt sick seeing behind his veneer, tasting his depression. How had he lived all these years with it eating at him like this? From my experiences with a couple dozen avs, I knew I'd felt depression, loneliness, and betrayal. I'd overlooked them all. Where were those ones now? The other avs I'd used as collateral on a poker table. Had they ended up splayed on a kitchen floor, the life draining out of them as they tasted nothing but bitter pills poisoning their tongues? Felt nothing but an overwhelming, condemning sense of lack? Heard nothing but the thunderous sound of no one coming to save them from themselves? How had I escaped the same fate? It wasn't through any hard work or conscientiousness on my own. Maybe it was only a matter of time before I ended up the same way, even if Logan had never come into my consciousness.
My primary's heart tightened. I felt something for Logan. Love, maybe? Sympathy? Empathy? Whatever it was, he was me now. And he needed me. I reached out to hug him. He knew what I was thinking, though, and he flinched. I couldn't force my affection on him, even though this feeling, whatever it was, threatened to blur my vision. You can feel this, I said, speaking aloud for his benefit, since he refused to interact with me any more than was necessary through our link. I know you do. He shrugged. I won't go to the game, okay? I said. I know you can't handle that right now, and that... wasn't cool of me. He didn't respond, and the dead chill that ran through his body disturbed my consciousness. The sliver of my consciousness that roughly made up my secondary asserted itself. You are useless at this. I agreed and acquiesced. Miles away, I pulled off my gloves and threw them down next to limp lettuce shavings and tasteless tomatoes and walked out, muttering to my boss about a personal emergency. I didn't wait to hear the response. My primary sat next to Logan in silence and waited for my secondary to arrive. Logan knew my secondary was coming, but it made no difference. I'm fine, I said for us, both times the doctor checked on us. Just need a little more time. He left us alone. This was apparently the one bureaucratic office in existence that didn't rush people out the door. Finally, my secondary arrived. I strode through the door and saw myself sitting there, both the ones used to being in charge, both waiting desperately for something to give. Hi, my secondary said, replacing my primary in the seat next to Logan. I didn't use this voice very much even at work. It was strange, yet satisfying, to be the one to speak for myself. It was softer, gentler than my primary. Logan's eyes flickered toward me, and I saw my secondary through his eyes, heavier than the others, the one I'd always utilized the least, the one I had ignored the most, because what did a taco wrapper have to offer? I held out my secondary's hand, tentatively touching his knuckles and waited. His fingers twitched. I slid my hand over his, my larger hand cradling his own. Hi, I said again. Logan said nothing, but I felt him waiting, anticipating what I would say. I'm not going to the poker game tonight, I said. I'm not going to any more poker games. There was a pause, and I felt him relax just a little into my touch. His self tickled the edges of my consciousness. You want the original more, he said. Not more than you, I said, running a thumb over the top of his hand. Maybe that av wouldn't even be comfortable with the kind of lifestyle I want to have right now. I envisioned quiet Sundays, trips to the grocery store altogether, reading books aloud. Nights where Logan could fall asleep in someone's arms, unashamed of his depression, until the collective could absorb the pain and replace it with hope. 
Of course, the old primary would want that, too, Logan self-thought. I felt his panic rise. I raised my arm cautiously. Maybe. Probably. But you're the one I want to spend time on right now, my secondary responded. Aside from being a greedy bitch, Marcy wouldn't mistreat my Av. She might even love it. He only paused for a moment before sliding into my waiting arms. He sighed into my shoulder and his chest softened against my own. It felt like he'd allowed me to take some of his burdens away. For a few moments, anyway. I was glad to take them on. Hugging him felt... good. Good for me. And good for him. My primary barged in and joined us in the typical way, and we created a three-person hug, foreheads pressing together, breathing one another's air, building the threads of something resembling... love, maybe? Was this what a real collective felt like? When I was ready to try getting my old primary, when Logan's self had reached a point of acceptance, however you measured it, when my primary learned to be a little kinder and a little less impulsive, when my secondary, which I was more and more certain needed to become my new primary, was comfortably assertive. In short, when I had reclaimed the bodies under my stewardship as my own, if at that point I was ready to tame the instability my old primary had brought, then I could reach out to Marcy and ask for my old primary back. And if she said no... Well, I knew a great lawyer. And there you go. Big thank you, Danzel. That thank you indeedy. Oh, yes, and Anthony, it's lovely to have you back on, lad. Uh, you just keep on churning them out for Thank you so much. So it is. Oh, yes. Actually, before we just jump into Amy, next time we're out, we don't, believe it or not, we have a fiction crawler. Yes, my God. Matthew Sanborn Smith has delivered... Fiction crawler number 18. <laughs> He's only on the 18. We've been going about 15 years, man. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, Ames girl. Hello, my friends. I hope this finds you safe and well. There's been a lot going on <laughs> uh, from the terrible global pandemic to other terrible events that have led to hopeful ones, including worldwide protests and calls for reform. And in the midst of everything, well, I have been teaching summer classes. And my topic today comes out of discussions I've had with my students this summer in one of my courses, which is called The Meaning of Star Wars. That is a graduate level class for master's level students and one of the discussions that came out of one of the class meetings led me to create a list and think through a timeline of works involving one particular actor. And my thesis has been that, in fact, this actor is the most important actor who has influenced Star Wars storytelling from 1977 to the present day. And this actor, in fact, never has been in a Star Wars film or television series or special. And yet, I think his shadow looms large over all of Star Wars storytelling. 
So what I'd like to share with you today, because I got very involved and very interested and very excited about my little timeline, I'd like to share with you why I think this actor is so influential and how, in fact, his works have inspired and informed Star Wars storytelling. Some of you have already probably guessed who it is that I'm talking about, and that is the Japanese actor Toshiro Mifune, who lived from 1920 to 1997. And I would call him the most important actor to influence Star Wars. He is best known for his collaborations with director Akira Kurosawa. However, there are works of his that were not directed by Kurosawa that are also important to Star Wars storytelling. Before I dive into my analysis here, I'd like to recommend a documentary, Mifune, The Last Samurai. It is a 2015 biographical documentary directed by Stephen Okazaki. And in the United States, at least, it is available streaming through Netflix. Now, we know from countless records and memoirs and biographies that George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars, held parties and events for both his classmates at film school and later his co-creators, watching Akira Kurosawa films, films starring Toshiro Mifune. But there are also other Star Wars creators. Dave Filoni, for example, who's one of the forces behind forces, ha, see what I did there, behind the Star Wars series Clone Wars, Rebels, and Mandalorian. J.J. Abrams, who is the director of episodes 7 and 9, that is The Force Awakens and The Rise of Skywalker, and John Favreau, who created The Mandalorian. They have all specifically stated ways that they have used Mifune's work or been influenced by Mifune. But let's go back to the beginning. When George Lucas was first thinking about casting his first Star Wars film, the film we now call A New Hope, for 1977 release, his first choice for Obi-Wan Kenobi was Toshira Mifune because of the way, in particular, he portrayed samurai characters in various films. For years, this had been reported about Lucas's choice, but in 2015, Mika Mifune, the daughter of Toshiro Mifune, verified this with a, an interview in The Hollywood Reporter. And she said, and I quote, I heard from my father that he was offered the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he was concerned about how the film would look and that it would cheapen the image of samurai, on which George Lucas had based a lot of the character and fighting style. She goes on to say, quote, At the time, sci-fi movies still looked quite cheap, as the effects were not advanced, and he had a lot of samurai pride. So then, there was talk about him taking the Darth Vader role as his face would be covered, but in the end, he turned that down too, end quote. That's completely understandable because, of course, no one knew at the time how Star Wars would revolutionize both the special effects used in science fiction films and also, in a sense, the reputation of science fiction films. 
It's interesting that in Disney Gallery, The Mandalorian, Episode 2, which just came out a couple of weeks ago here in 2020 on Disney+, Plus, this is the documentary series that looks behind the scenes at the making of The Mandalorian. Dave Filoni talks about his very first meeting with George Lucas when Lucas was essentially interviewing him to come on and work with Lucasfilm. And Lucas started talking about how a Jedi would approach the topic. And then immediately said uh, Toshiro Mifune and used Mifune as the model of his hypothetical Jedi. Decades after creating Star Wars, Lucas was still defaulting to the idea of Mifune as the Jedi. And to be perfectly honest, I think there are so many things about Mifune's performances and his charisma and his integrity as an actor. I, I became a Mifune fan, really tracing back the history of Star Wars. Star Wars led me to investigate Akira Kurosawa films, and those led me to become a fan of Toshiro Mifune and his performances. And I'm delighted to see that his influence continues to resonate in Star Wars up through the present day. So what I'd like to do is lead you on a bit of a chronological journey through Mifune's films. I hope if you are already a fan, you'll enjoy this. And if you're not, you'll seek some of these films out. I want to point out that not all of these movies are samurai films. There are some set in different times, and they are very different performances. And yet it's clear that as a body of work and as specific movies... Mifune's legacy has informed Star Wars to an amazing degree, and it's just fantastic if you love cinema to explore and enjoy. So let's start with the movie Stray Dog. This is a Kurosawa film from 1949. It's a crime drama, film noir, set in essentially the present day. It was only Kurosawa's second film, and it was received as one of the first great Japanese detective movies. It explored the mood of Japan during uh, its recovery from the war, a very painful time, a time of transition. It's considered to be today a precursor to the contemporary police procedural film, and also one of the first great examples of the buddy cop film genre, where the two main cops are also, in a sense, friends, and there's banter, and there's sort of mentorship as one learns from the other, and the relationship between the two forms a central part of the film. It's especially uh, powerful on the mentor-student angle, the idea of training on the job, and the friendship that comes from that. Some scholars of Star Wars connect this directly, this dynamic, to the Obi-Wan Kenobi-Anakin Skywalker dynamic in the film's Attack of the Clones and the first part of Revenge of the Sith. That's episodes two and three. That's also pretty clear in the entirety of the Clone Wars television series. Both in the relationship between Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker, and also in the relationship between Anakin Skywalker and his Padawan, Ahsoka Tano. But there's also an intentional tribute to 
Stray Dog in The Clone Wars, and that is the episode Lightsaber Lost. In the official description of that episode, we learn, when a wily pickpocket steals Ahsoka's lightsaber, she enlists the help of an ancient Jedi to track down her weapon and reclaim her honor. So here now I would like to quote from Brian Young, a critic on StarWars.com, the official Star Wars website. And here is what Young says about this episode. Quote, The episode takes its inspiration directly from Akira Kurosawa's post-war noir film Stray Dog, 1949. This film stars Toshiro Mifune as a young police officer whose difficulties mirror those of Ahsoka in the episode. His pistol has been lifted during a trip on an overflowing trolley, and he has to track the criminals responsible before their crimes escalate. But a murder takes place with his gun, and he knows how many bullets are left. Mifune's character is aided by a veteran detective played by the redoubtable Takashi Shimura, who advises him as best he can. Sunube bears much resemblance to Shimura, both in spirit and in look. Sunube, who was created for Lightsaber Lost, bears as much resemblance to a dog as well, hearkening back to the title of the film that inspired the episode. Both the film and the episode of The Clone Wars deal with the moral ambiguities of people at the bottom of the social ladder and what they must do to survive. The petty criminal class isn't one that often rises to the attention of the Jedi, especially during the era of the Clone Wars, and it's fascinating to see them operating in the seedy underbelly of the galactic capital. So, in short, what you have here is creators going back to the films of one of the directors and starring one of the actors most responsible for the original Star Wars to create later Star Wars content and make a tribute to that early film. Another film, the next film that I want to mention is Rashomon, also directed by Kurosawa, came out the next year, 1950, starring Toshiro Mifune. It was the first international breakout hit for Kurosawa, and thus for Mifune, and it won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. This is such an important movie in the history of cinema, and it's such an amazing exploration of what truth is and how we know it. Just to give you a sense of its import, uh, a while back I was teaching a first-year experience course about ways of knowing that was a required course for all incoming students at the university where I taught. And one of the features of the first-year cohort experience at that university was that all of the incoming students would watch a film in common. And then both in their first-year experience classes and also as a group, uh, they would then be led in discussions about the film and how it reflected ways of knowing and, and what it made them think about and how they could apply this in their academic studies. And Rashomon was a film that was used in this way, assigned to every student who was coming to the university. I highly recommend it. So what is it about? It is about 
a rape and murder that is told over and over again from the point of view of different witnesses and, for that matter, participants. The main point of the story is that the story changes every time it's told. Everyone is actually convinced that they themselves are the guilty party, the ones who are responsible for these terrible crimes. There are direct links from this movie, then, to the Luke Skywalker almost kills Ben Solo sequence and its retellings in the film The Last Jedi, Episode 8 of Star Wars. Not just the concept, but also how these scenes are shot. And director Ryan Johnson has repeatedly given credit where credit is due. It's becoming commonplace now among Star Wars scholars and critics and students to call those sequences in The Last Jedi the Rashomon scenes, in fact. Next up is Seven Samurai from 1954, directed by Kurosawa, starring Mifune. This film tells the story of a group of peasants who are rice farmers, and bandits fall upon them and intend to take their food, but then they discover they've come too early in the season. So they inform the poor farmers that they will come back when the rice is ready and they will loot the crops. Instead of curling up in fear, as they had every time in the past and just yielding to the bandits, this time the peasants decide they're going to hire samurai to protect them. And ultimately, they find a band of masterless samurai to not only come and defend them, but also to teach them how to defend themselves. This was ultimately remade as John Sturgis's western The Magnificent Seven in 1960. Seven Samurai inspired one of the very first Star Wars comic arcs. It started with issue number seven of the Star Wars comics. These comics are now considered legends, not canon, as far as the Star Wars internal chronology goes. But the canon influence is still strong from this film. In fact, it has inspired two separate tribute episodes from Star Wars series. The first, Bounty Hunters, in the series The Clone Wars. In that episode, Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and Ahsoka Tano end up forming a partnership with four deadly bounty hunters. And they do this to help defend a local farmer from Hondo Anaka and his band of pirates. Most recently in The Mandalorian, the episode Sanctuary is also a tribute to Seven Samurai. In that episode, The Mandalorian and Cara Dune help a village that is also being attacked by raiders. And they not only defend the villagers, but also train them to defend themselves. So the influence of Seven Samurai on Star Wars, very clear. Now, I'd like to recommend the Samurai Trilogy. These three films were 1954, 55, and 56, respectively. And they are not directed by Kurosawa. In fact, these were directed by Hiroshi Inagaki, and they star Toshiro Mufune as a historical and literary character, Musashi Miyamoto. 
He was a duelist. He was the author of the Book of Five Rings. And there is a famous novel that is available in English about his life called Musashi by Eiji Yoshikawa. And the Samurai Trilogy, which begins with the first film Musashi Miyamoto, which was also an Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Language Film, tells the story of Musashi's life and allows Toshiro Mifune again to just exemplify the samurai. I want to read here from Adam O'Brien's analysis in Fantha Tracks, called Kenobi Musashi and the Plight of Warrior Poets. O'Brien writes, The Edo period in particular is like the prequel era of Star Wars, where it's a more regal and classical period of elegance and no conflict. Behind the scenes, obviously, lots were happening as Palpatine was working his great chess game and putting all of his pawns in the right places. The Jedi Order was like the retainers of the Edo period, reduced to nothing more than negotiators being sent in pairs to face whatever potential political or financial squabble for the Republic. He, Musashi, was also someone that was a true brains in combat, using his ability to psych out opponents, having won a duel in his mind before he'd even struck a blow. Obi-Wan Kenobi was very much like this in his older years. His confrontations with Darth Maul on Tatooine and later with Vader on the Death Star are both where he's controlled the outcome through his psychological strike on his opponents, playing on their egos, their fears, and their repetitive behaviors, end quote. So here O'Brien is comparing Musashi's story and setting with Star Wars storytelling such as A New Hope, such as the prequel trilogy of films, and such as, in the case of Obi-Wan Kenobi fighting Darth Maul on Tatooine, the Clone Wars television series. I think it's also suggestive that in the Musashi trilogy, the Samurai trilogy, we follow this hero as he grows and learns and matures. And that is, in a sense, what Star Wars allows us to do with several characters, but most notably Obi-Wan Kenobi. So although there isn't a clear one-to-one with, for example, a tribute episode or scene, I think it's very suggestive that Mufune's performances in these films, and certainly others think so as well, had their imprint on or effect on Star Wars. Next, I want to go to Throne of Blood. That's 1957. We're back to a Kurosawa film here, and this is just a stunning film to watch. It is a retelling of Shakespeare's Macbeth, but with samurai. It's centers around Toshiro Mifune uh, as Washizu, a general who is prophesied to become the lord of Spider's Web Castle. His wife works on him and goads him and presses him to make this prophecy become reality. And to do that, he has to kill his lord and assume his lord's place. But paranoia and evil take him over and his ending is bloody and violent. I want to go back here to Brian Young on the official Star Wars website where he analyzes Throne of Blood. 
And in his analysis, one of his points, and I'll quote here, another aspect to the film that found its way into the mythos of the Sith is the murder of the master at the hands of the apprentice to take their place. The Sith are plagued by the paranoia of being murdered by their subordinates, and Kurosawa's film is the personification of such troubling fear. Many books in the Legends line of Star Wars, including Darth Plagueis, utilize the anxiety and nausea of making such terrible decisions to maximum effect in their telling of Sith stories. But perhaps the moment that is mirrored most heavily between Throne of Blood and Star Wars is the choice given to the main character. In Throne of Blood, Mifune's character is told that he can act to murder his lord in order to save his own life, or he could remain loyal and hope that he wasn't murdered. The angst caused by this dilemma is mirrored in Anakin Skywalker's choice in Revenge of the Sith, when he's given this choice between helping Palpatine or Mace Windu. After Anakin makes his choice, the look of pained agony on his face is heartbreaking and is a mirror of the trouble Mifune goes through after murdering his own lord and committing crime after crime to justify his actions. In Throne of Blood, the two generals of the murdered leader, Mifune's Washizu and Akira Kubo's Miki, find themselves at odds after a lifetime of friendship. Their relationship of camaraderie, turning to revenge and betrayal, is subtly explored in much the same ways we'd see Anakin and Obi-Wan turn through the prequels. End quote. And that's it. Paranoia, betrayal, making a bad decision and then making a whole lot of other bad decisions to try to justify the first bad decision, and the agony of knowing there's no way back, or at least believing there's no way back after a terrible betrayal has taken place. This is really just a stunning film. I highly recommend it. And its, its theatrical, almost operatic intensity is just mesmerizing to watch. Now we come to a film that, if any Mifune film is cited as an influence on Star Wars, well, it's this one. Also, Akira Kurosawa directed 1958's The Hidden Fortress. It's worth pointing out that when George Lucas was first pitching Star Wars, he, he first went with the Flash Gordon idea, but he also then described the idea of Star Wars as hidden fortress in space. There are so many things that George Lucas took from this film for Star Wars, from the character points of view, the peasants at the beginning of the film who are our point of view characters, who are squabbling, who are sort of wandering around trying to figure out where they're going. Those peasants become R2-D2 and C-3PO in the original Star Wars. And even the music is similar as... John Williams is giving a tribute to the scenes in which we are introduced to those peasants. The way the wipes work, moving from scene to scene. And, of course, the plot. A young, spirited princess in peril. A wise, honorable general who serves her and saves her and restores her to her place. The ragtag group of characters who get caught up in this quest. It's all there. If you get, for example, the Criterion Collection DVD of The Hidden Fortress, there is an extra feature, a 2001 interview with George Lucas, who talks about 
the pervasive influence of the Hidden Fortress on Star Wars. But, of course, the center point is Toshiro Mufune as this general, the general who inspires Obi-Wan Kenobi, the character, the former Jedi general, honorable, wise, powerful, protective, able to go undercover and blend in or shine on a stage, a relic of a more civilized age. If you only watch one film of this list in relationship to Star Wars, watch The Hidden Fortress. So, The Hidden Fortress was 1958. Three years later, Kurosawa directs Toshiro Mifune in Yojimbo, 1961, and that casts the samurai character as the lone gunslinger. Mifune portrays a ronin, a masterless samurai, who comes into a small town where competing crime lords are trying to become the master of the town. The two bosses each try to hire his character as a bodyguard, as sort of the force that will put them over the top and allow them to become supreme. Based on the success of Yojimbo, by the way, Kurosawa's next film, Sanjuro, in the next year, 1962, was altered to incorporate that same lead character. And this character, ugh, absolutely iconic. And here I want to quote Kristen Brennan from Star Wars Origins. The subtle lesson Lucas learned from Kurosawa is how to translate movie ideas between America and Japan. Kurosawa had become famous partially for telling stories about Japanese samurai using ideas he borrowed from American westerns and detective stories. Kurosawa's Yojimbo was based on Dashiell Hammett's 1928 book Red Harvest. Hammett had been a real-life detective for the famous Pinkerton Detective Agency, so his crime stories had a ring of authenticity that readers loved. Red Harvest was Hammett's first novel. It told the story of an unnamed gunslinger who cleans up a crooked town mostly by pitting the bad guys against each other, though he wasn't above killing the bad guys himself when the situation demanded it. Kurosawa's remake starred Toshiro Mifune as the man with no name. Then, in 1964, Italian director Sergio Leone remade Yojimbo as A Fistful of Dollars, starring Clint Eastwood as the man with no name. End quote. So, just so you know, <laughs> John Favreau has made this clear. This is where The Mandalorian comes from the Star Wars series that has now been named, according to Business Insider, the most popular television series in the world right now. Pedro Pascal, who plays the Mandalorian, has said in interviews also that Favreau explained the show to him using the Yojimbo reference, uh, recommending the film, and making it clear that Pedro Pascal's Mandalorian is, in fact, Toshiro Mufune's Man With No Name. Just as an aside, by the way, I highly recommend the fantastic podcast, The Soundtrack Show, by professional musician and musicologist David W. Collins. And he has a series 
of several episodes of that podcast that explore and analyze the soundtrack music, the scores to the Man With No Name trilogy by Sergio Leone, starting with A Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, and then The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And he makes the connection between the music for those films that were inspired by, again, these uh, films starring Toshiro Mifune. He makes a connection between the music in those films and the music now being made for The Mandalorian. Fantastic brilliant connections there. And you can really hear it when you listen to the music. So if you're keeping up, I have recommended Stray Dog from 1949, Rashomon from 1950, Seven Samurai from 1954, The Samurai Trilogy from 54, 55, and 56, Throne of Blood from 1957, The Hidden Fortress from 1958, Yojimbo from 1961, and if you're going to watch Yojimbo, go ahead and watch Sanjiro, too, from 1962. And I have just two more recommendations. High and Low from 1962 is also a Kurosawa-directed film. It tells the story of a shoemaker named Gondo, and that is, again, Toshira Mufune. Although not a samurai this time, in fact, he is just a present-day, present-day at the time, shoemaker who is hoping to gain control of the company where he's worked for 30 years. The owners now are really letting the whole place tank, making poor quality shoes. They're slipshod. They're, they don't care, essentially. And Gondo has put his heart and soul into this entire enterprise. He wants to save the company. He wants to restore its reputation. And he's been saving and putting together the money to make this happen. But just as he has the funds to take control of the company, his son is kidnapped. And ransom, that money he'd put together, is demanded. Okay, really, this should be an easy choice, right? Uh, A business or your son. Right, Even though he's been wanting to take this business over for some time, he's a good man, and of course he's going to choose his son. Except, just as the kidnapper's asking for the money, Gondo's son walks in the room. As it turns out, he was playing with his best friend. His best friend is the son of Gondo's chauffeur. And the kidnapper just took the wrong boy by accident. The chauffeur, however, is very poor, and he can't pay this money. He begs Gondo to pay the ransom anyway. So the story unfolds essentially on two fronts. One is this police procedural. The detectives are trying to figure out who the kidnapper is, where the kidnapper is, why he's doing this, and how to get the boy back. But the second is a kind of morality play. As Gondo tries to do the right thing, and he's just financially ruined in the process... This is a crime drama, and Mifune just really shines in this. It's such a different performance from some of his others. He is so throttled. He's got the lid on it. The stress that he's under comes through so clearly, but he's trying to be so restrained. It's just remarkable. In an interview with Empire Magazine, J.J. Abrams, the director of The Force Awakens, said that... He studied high and low specifically for its 
unbelievable scene choreography and composition. The themes obviously come through clearly. It's about parents and children, what parents owe children, vice versa. It's about sacrifice. It's about resentment. And you can see a lot of those themes in The Force Awakens. In fact, speaking of resentment, the kidnapper, he's just got these helpless, raw bursts of anger that come to the fore and take him over. Very reminiscent of the kind of tantrums that Kylo Ren throws in The Force Awakens, and later, for that matter. There's an intensity even to the talking scenes. You're on the edge of your seat because the stakes are so high. And so even when it's just characters speaking to each other and there's no physical action going on, you're just glued to the screen. And J.J. Abrams was clearly trying to bring that to The Force Awakens as well. And as for scene composition, High and Low's opening scene shows Toshiro Mifune as a dark figure staring out of a window. And The Force Awakens has a parallel scene, Kylo Ren, dark, watching the initial firing of Starkiller Base. So in the themes, in the way emotion comes across on the screen, even scene composition, the parallel there, the influence is clear. Okay, I said I only had two more recommendations. I lied. I'm just going to throw this one in quickly. I don't have any direct evidence here, but I do want to recommend Kurosawa's Red Beard from 1965, in which Toshiro Mufune portrays, well, Roger Ebert said that this was almost the last film that Kurosawa would make about an exemplary human being. And that's the character portrayed by Mifune, Redbeard himself, this serene, humanistic, wonderful doctor. And again, I don't have any clear proof, but I see very strongly connections between Mifune's Redbeard and the Qui-Gon Jinn character, really the greatest Jedi, the epitome of what a Jedi could be the lone iconoclastic Jedi doing his own thing because he believes that's the right thing to do. So I'm just throwing that in as an aside, another amazing performance by Mifune. Although really the focus of the film is less on the red beard character himself than one of his students who is learning the lessons that red beard teaches him. It's a beautiful film. Okay, on to, then, Hell in the Pacific from 1968, directed by John Borman. It is another iconic film. It is a World War II film set on a lone island in the middle of the Pacific, no one on it, except two stranded soldiers. Toshiro Mifune is a stranded Japanese soldier, and Lee Marvin is an American soldier, much of the movie is about their rivalry. Obviously, they're on different sides of the war. But quickly, they understand that if either of them is going to survive, they have to work together. This is really significant because Mifune was multilingual. He could speak English, but he spoke only Japanese with no subtitles in the film. We experience as viewers 
the fact that these two men cannot speak to and understand each other, which is interesting when you think about Star Wars in the way that, for example, droid language or Wookiee language or other languages are presented without subtitles, and you have to understand from context what's being said. There have been many, many films and television series that have made tributes to Hell in the Pacific. Again, it's a very influential work. There are many Star Trek episodes that are, you know, this is this Star Trek series tribute to Hell in the Pacific. There are films like Enemy Mine, and there is specifically a Star Wars tribute episode, and that is The Honorable Ones from Star Wars Rebels. If you haven't seen Star Wars Rebels, it is my favorite of the Star Wars animated series. The Clone Wars gets a lot of love, and rightly so, but I think Star Wars Rebels is beautifully done. And here is a description from the official Star Wars website, again, Brian Young, in a piece that says, The legendary Toshiro Mifune stars in a film that would go on to influence a classic episode of Star Wars Rebels. Quote, when Zeb and Agent Callus crash land on an uninhabited moon, they're left with the prospect of killing each other or working together in order to find a way off the planet. During the course of their exile, they come to a greater understanding of each other. It's amazing to me that the crew of Rebels is able to condense such difficult ideas and concepts into a show so brief. But we've also had the benefit of a season and a half of shows leading up to this point, illuminating Zeb and Callus for us. We know this is a difficult situation for them, but we don't realize how difficult until they're forced to face each other. End quote. For the record, Callus is in part responsible for the genocide committed against Zeb's people. So this really is a kind of war situation, even you might say world war situation. And it's good to see that connection being made explicitly between Hell in the Pacific and Star Wars Rebels. So the big takeaway here is that, first, Toshiro Mifune was the Jedi for George Lucas who created Star Wars, and we can see his influence on Obi-Wan Kenobi and many other characters. But like it did for me, knowing this connection led other people who loved Star Wars to discover Toshiro Mifune's works. And through that, then, we see that new generations of Star Wars storytellers are also taking inspiration from Mifune's performances, and not just as a samurai, but some of his other performances as well. Many of the Mufune works that influenced Star Wars were directed by Akira Kurosawa, but not all of them. Some of Mufune's other works also have resonances in Star Wars. In short, Mufune was and is one of the greatest and most influential actors in world cinema. And if nothing else, I hope that this little tour of some of his works and their relationships to Star Wars will lead you to watch or rewatch some of his work and perhaps the documentary about his life. 
This was fun for me to put together, so I hope that you've enjoyed it. Once more, and these are not all of Mifune's works. They are just the ones that I've discussed that I think have particular relevance if you're interested in Star Wars storytelling. Stray Dog, 1949. Rashomon, 1950. Seven Samurai, 1954. The Samurai Trilogy, 54, 55, and 56. Throne of Blood, 1957. The Hidden Fortress, 1958. Yojimbo, 1961. And its companion work, Sanjuro, 1962. High and Low, 1962. Redbeard, 1965. And Hell in the Pacific, 1968. Stay safe and well, my friends, and I look forward to joining you again soon with something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. I hope everything is all right. There's a picture of Amy on on the internet there, and she's got like a you know a COVID mask or the COVID thing, and it just looks super cool. Amy, you look fantastic, man. Oh, big hugs, big hugs. So that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I was going to say, do stick around. <laughs> you've, you've actually stuck around. Again, we're, you know, we're doing this kind of every fortnight now. Just it's Times are tough at the moment, but it's it's one of those things. It's tough for everybody, to be honest. So if you can support, we're fantastic. Until next time, I'd just like to say good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way But you're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll 
I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. Out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.